recorded live from around British Columbia, Canada. This is Ramsey Theory. No strangers at this party. In this program, students of Ramsey Theory investigate the deepest questions in the field and dig into the lives of the most notable modern theorists. The podcast is hosted by Simon Fraser University, which is located on the unceded traditional territories of the Tsleil-Waututh, Coquitlam, Skomish, and Musqueam nations. This podcast was made possible by the students of Simon Fraser University's Ramsey Theory Course, led by Dr. Vaselin Yungich, who is also the producer of this series as well as funding from the Math Catcher Outreach Program. Stay tuned because this is Ramsey Theory, no strangers at this party. Hello everyone and welcome to Ramsey Theory, no strangers at this party. My name is Stephen Ng and I'm a student at Simon Fraser University, currently planning to enter a teaching program to become a high school teacher. What fascinates me about math is how there is so much of it, but a lot of people do not realize that it's there until they put certain pieces together. Then patterns and mathematics arise, which is also why I got involved with this project, because it allowed me to speak with mathematicians across the world who have put those pieces together. Hi, I'm Pyle. I'm a fourth year computing science student at Simon Fraser University, British Columbia. I'm interested in mathematics because I think, along with computing, it makes me better at problem solving. My name is Newt Harden. I'm a third year student at SFU. I'm getting a minor in math and I'm in a chem degree right now. I am hoping to switch into the education program as I would like to teach kindergarten someday. I'm getting a math minor because I find patterns and problem solving in math very interesting and very intriguing to learn about. Hello there. My name is Harleen Kaur and I'm a second year student at Simon Fraser University. My major is computer science but since I was a kid I always had interest in mathematics which made me pursue a minor in math and that is how I took this course. Also talking to mathematicians from all over the world for this project made me realize how important Ramsey theory is and how much of an impact it makes in this world. We hope to learn more about mathematics Ramsey theory, and of course, notable Ramsey theorists through this podcast. So we have another special guest today, Dr. Bill Gasarch, who is a professor at the University of Maryland in the Department of Computer Science. Dr. Bill Gasarch earned his doctorate in computer science from Harvard in 1985 with his thesis paper, Recursion Theoretic Techniques in Complexity Theory and Combinatorics. Dr. Bill Gasarch has published over 90 papers in his academic career and even maintains a blog called Computational Complexity, diving into, quote, fun stuff in math and computer science. Welcome, Dr. Bill Gasarch. I am delighted to be here. I went to, I went to college at Stony Brook, a state school in New York. Uh, you're from Canada. You don't, you don't know any of these things. Wow. <laughs> uh, then I went to Harvard for grad school. That you've probably heard of. Um, yeah. I, got, I got a PhD in computer science. Although really I'm a mathematician at heart, I often say I'm a mathematician at a computer scientist's salary, which is a good thing. Um, and <laughs> I've been at Maryland from 1985 until now. I'm still there, University of Maryland at College Park. Great place to be. I'm happy to be there. I think it's unusual being at the same place that many years. Um, but I like it. And I work in I work in theoretical I work in theoretical computer science, which is really not that far from math actually. 
Oh, I think that math is actually more of an older field and more tired field and comp sci theory is actually more vibrant and more open problems you can actually look at. And um, I'm known for, I've worked a lot on Ramsey theory. Uh, I have a blog about complexity theory and I've mentored a lot of high school students. Oh, and I have plug, I have two books out, uh, not on Ramsey theory actually enough. Uh, one is on my blog called Problems with a Point, co-authored with uh, Clyde Kruskal. And uh, one is called Mathematical Muffin Morsels because nobody wants a small piece about the muffin problem. So go read those. Uh, I know it is somewhat gauche saying how much money you made. I made 50 bucks on the muffin book last year. So there's that. That's bank. Hey, yeah. you know it. <laughs> okay. Oh, and the next question was uh, growing up. So say uh, the question. My dad was an English teacher. And my mom was an uh, English professor at a community college. And so my mom thinks I was switched at birth because I mentioned, because I, I do mathematics. But let me take that more seriously. I think she's overestimating how much genetics plays a role. Being raised by two educators who are intellectuals who could afford to send me to college, I think is a lot more important than whatever field I happened to pick. And it was mathematics. Um, well, it, it is funny though, they have no idea what I'm talking about most of the time. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that's because of math, maybe that's just me. Um, and I remember when I went to college, I told my dad, I'm gonna major in math. He told me two things he said, Bill, for one, Take physics also, because math and physics go well together, and physics was the origin of calculus. That, that's pretty good. I, that, that's good. And, and, and he would, I did. That was good. And he said, and Bill, pi is exactly 22 sevenths. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why. By the way, for the viewers out there, viewers, listeners, that's not true. But um, I don't know why he thought that. I also don't know why he thought to tell me that as being important. But that is maybe the extent to his knowledge. Um, and... I went into uh, computers. I went into actually I mentioned math as an undergraduate. Oh, I went to Stony Brook in 1976. So uh, back then, the, we, we, there actually was a comp sci department. Oh yes, I was going to major in math and comp sci. Do you know what punch cards are? Anyone? Yes. Oh, yes. Awesome. Awesome. yes. I am. Su I'm surprised you are perhaps better educated historically than my students are. My students don't. Actually, most students don't know it. One student, when I asked the question, waved one at me. It was weird. I don't know how he got one. <laughs> It's knapsack. He told me earlier that a fellow student told him I'd ask the question, so he came prepared. My, my <laughs> point is that my first intro uh, programming course in 76 was on punch cards. And so seriously, mm. after my first comp sci course in programming, I didn't do comp sci for the six years. I didn't program for the six years. Uh, I did indeed wait for the better interface. And at Harvard, I took some programming course, but my heart really is mathematics anyway. Yeah, I jotted down a few things. There was evidence when I was a kid that I was interested in math. I wouldn't say that I was good at math, but I was interested in math. I'm not quite sure it's that far apart. Those two aren't that far apart anyway, though. Um, mm -hmm. In particular, in fourth grade, I wanted to find out how many seconds were in a century. So I did actually work it out. Although I was told later on, I forgot about leap years. Oh, come on. I was oh. in fourth grade. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So shoot me. Okay. Uh, and the last thing I'll tell you about this is, do you know what the new math was a long time ago? Probably not. New math? Oh, yeah. I don't think so. Okay, the new math, when I was in school, this is before you were born, literally, so like 19, 1970s, 60s. Um, it was a way, a notion of, hey, we should teach kids more abstract things when they're kids, like the additions community. Oh, God, really? Really? <laughs> Terrible idea. We have this oh. thing, but that was called like mental math. Okay. But do you learn that the five plus three equals three plus five? Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 Glad to hear it. Yeah. Okay. But do you therefore not bother learning that it's eight? That's sort of the trouble. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. My trouble is that, so I was either a beneficiary or victim of the new math, but I like that. And I remember in particular in ninth grade, 
they wanted to come up with their own operations. I wanted an operation that was commutative, not associative. And I came up with one. It was take X and Y and take the absolute value of X minus Y. Oh boy. Now, this story is not impressive from mathematical ability, but that I care. That's, I think, impressive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, and a last thought there is that I went into, in ninth grade, they told me you could not solve the general quintic equation. I went to college to find out why you could not find a general quintic equation. That's all I wanted to know. Why you couldn't solve the quintic. I didn't care about calculus, proofs. I just wanted to know why you couldn't solve the general quintic equation. That was my focus when I first went to college. Okay. okay. And I'm assuming you answered that though, right? Oh, oh, in fact, well, let me actually follow that a little further. This may actually touch on one of your questions you were going to ask me. Um, as a junior, uh, he finished the proof. The professor did finish the proof. And he said, he and he knew, said, Bill, so now what are you going to do? And uh, gosh, I don't know. I told him, well, I think I'll become a hobo and ride the rails. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, um, really? And I said, no, not really. <laughs> so then I told him the following, seriously. I then, I said, well, I have heard there are problems you couldn't solve at all. I'll go take a course in logic to find out about that. So I did. I took a course in logic. I learned the Halting problem. I learned Gödel's theorem. That was very nice. And the last day of class, Joel Spencer, a combinatorist, was teaching the course. The last day of class, he said, people are now also concerned with not just what you can or can't solve, but you can or can't solve quickly. And I said, really? And that sounded kind of intriguing to me. So uh, based on that one comment, I went to grad school in comp study to get a PhD. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so the thing is, that, but the notion of given a problem, how hard is it? is a very fundamental and intriguing problem that permeates all the mathematics and computer science. And so I said earlier, I do comp sci because it pays better. Really, it does fit into my original motivation anyway of being uh, back, back, way back to the quintic, given a problem, how hard is it? Also is, that, is in that framework. So that, that's been my driving interest. Ramsey theory came later, but that was a driving interest. That perfectly segued to my next question, which was how are you introduced to Ramsey yes. theory and has it affected the way you think? Absolutely, yes. Um, see, whenever I go to a party, I look and see, are there three people who know each other? Okay, actually, as a side yeah. note, COVID has made that weird. When I tell my class, if you have 42 people at a party, ah, you can't do that, COVID, ah! <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Ramsey of Five is now known because you can't have parties that big anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, when I was an undergraduate, my, I think it was my junior or senior year, I forget which, Joel Spencer, again, a combinatorist, he taught, he taught a course in combinatorics, a graduate course, which I took. And the course did have some Ramsey theory in it, which I did like. And I, did, I was intrigued by the notion of uh, things like, you know, you'll always get a pattern. Well, let me just give you uh, the obvious, uh, let me give you, uh, even though you play, know this already. Uh, give, okay, Stephen, give me a number. Seven. Seven, fine. As you probably all know, if you have enough people at a party, there's going to either be seven who all know each other or seven who don't know each other. But a- as a junior, I was thinking, really? And I mean, for all? Wow. And my first thought was, it must be a really, really big number. I found that it's only, quote, two to the, two to the 2K, which actually is not really, I thought it was much bigger than that. So I was, in, I was intrigued that it was true. And I first thought, oh, it's gotta be a really big number. Perhaps a proof that's not constructive. Nope, it's actually two to the two K. So that was kind of nice. But because I was so intrigued in the first place by my incorrect thought, must be a large number. That also segues into, you know, the Paris Harrington theorem. I can't say um, I do. I don't think I do. I'll just say, okay, I'll just say briefly. I'm not gonna say it for you. I'll say it, I'll look it up. 
I'll say that um, there is a Ramsey theory theorem. It's called the Paris-Harrington theorem, where the proof is non-constructive. The numbers really are large, and you can prove they're large. In fact, you cannot prove this theorem in piano arithmetic, like in standard mathematics. So what I originally thought would be Ramsey theory later on, I was segwayed back into logic because this theorem had that really fast growth rate. Okay, so, so first thing was Joel Spencer's Combinatorics course and my misconception. Here's the thing also for, your, for yourself and for your readers. The fact that I was wrong, that's awesome. That being wrong sort of helped propel me to be more curious. So yeah. if you think a theorem is true and it's false or you're misguided, cherish that moment. I mean, don't, don't defend it. Don't say, you know, no, no, it's not true after all. But I mean, so accept it certainly, but then actually wonder why you're wrong and go on in that. It can be more very, very intriguing actually. Okay, then the next, my next encounter with Ramsey theory, I didn't really see much Ramsey theory. Oh, that's not quite right. Oh yes, oh yes. As a uh, grad student, uh, Anil on the road gave a great talk, which really inspired me. I'll tell you what it was about and I'll go back to Ramsey theory. Um, as you all know, you're all math majors of, of some form, correct? Yes, yeah. I'm a yeah. math minor. Yeah. 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 I, I don't major. You all, you're all math people, by better way of putting it. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Very good. So as you know, there are some, there are some proofs that are non-constructive. Do we know that? Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. There are some proofs where you prove something exists, but you don't, you don't actually construct it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Stephen seems less sure of this, but okay, Stephen, now you know. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> and, um, and history lesson, in the early 1900s, there was a big controversy about these proofs. In those days, math and physics were far more connected than they are now. So a non-constructive proof couldn't really be good because you want to apply it someplace. We can't think, we can't think in those terms nowadays, certainly. But the point is, though, that there was a big controversy, and the people who were against these kinds of proofs had arguments against them, which were some philosophical, some mathematical. Anil on the road in the 1970s, he actually revived their objections, not to say they were right, but to say, let's actually ask the question, not so much. And they would say weird things like, um, Hilbert's solution to Gordon's problem uh, is bad. I'm not saying wrong, I'm saying bad, because it's non-constructive. We can't imagine that. But Anil on the road's program, and later, later uh, Friedman and Simpson, were more along the lines of, Put aside the philosophy, put aside the ethics of a proof being bad, and ask, does the proof have to be non-constructive? Like, given a proof that's non-constructive, can you prove that there is no other proof of it? And mm -hmm. so um, I, he said sort of jokingly in the talk, um, in those days, people in math carried firearms. In case a, a fight broke out about non-constructive proofs. He was kidding. <laughs> but the point is, that we, we have now put our guns down and asked the more sedate question of, is does the proof have to be non-constructive? So Anil Narod's talk made me really go off on a course of combinatorics. In fact, I was very, very pleased. Later on, you're going to ask me what my favorite paper was. I'll, I'll, I'll cut chase here. Anil Narod later asked me to write a survey of a course of combinatorics for a, for a uh, book he was putting together. And I did. Uh, it was 130 pages. God, I was younger and more wow. energetic back then. Wow. I mean, I mean, if you, if, frankly, uh, I think every single theorem in recursive combinatorics you want to know is in that. It's, in fact, a weird thing happened. It was a joint project with America and the USSR. You may recall. Oh, wow. uh, and then really? they fell apart. It was delayed about 10 years because by the time they fell apart, and uh, Anil Narod said, he's like, okay, we can now take your survey. I then actually did a quick, a quick glance at literature. I did add a few more things to it, but the point is though, that that really, so I, that was like the meta mathematics of Ramsey theory. And now Ramsey theory, so point one, Joe Spencer's course. Point two, recursive mathematics and the old talk. Point three, 
more back to computer science is um, in the 1983 stock conference, uh, Dick Lipton gave a great talk on the following. There was a certain problem in computer science, a certain problem in communication complexity. That is, uh, you know, Alice and Bob want to compute something, but uh, and they, they want to uh, communicate bits as little as possible. Say, and can you get a lower bound on how many bits they must actually exchange back and forth? Anyway, the, they, have very, they had a very clean problem in this area. And the answer to the problem, the upper and lower bound matched, but it was a certain kind of Ramsey number. They can do it in uh, inverse Van de Warden three comma N bits, and they can't do any better than that, something like that. And the weird thing is, it was really intrigued me that they actually know the upper and lower bound, but the actual bounds on that bound, it was between like log log N and, uh, and like root N. So this weird quantity, which, so is that an exact bound or not? They have the exact bound, yeah. but they can't actually calculate it. That really intrigued me. Um, and um, so that, that would be my, my third uh, entry into this. And let me see now. Um, my Oh, yeah, I, I want one more. Uh, again, I, I still put it aside for a while. When I began mentoring high school students a lot, I began looking at Ramsey theories. You might know because you have large, pretty large numbers. I began looking at scaled-down versions of it for the high school students. That was a, a good side project. But also, uh, do you know Van der Waarden's theorem? Yes. Yeah, well, we're yeah. Very good. So as you know, Van der Waarden's theorem is A, A plus D, A plus 2D, D. plus 3D, all the same color. The poly Van der Waarden theorem is replace those Ds with polynomials, like A, A plus D squared, A plus oh. DQ plus D squared. All oh, wow. the polynomials, however, must have, the polynomials must have, they can't have a constant term. So you can't have D plus one, for example. But the point is though, I knew the theorem was true and had a really hard proof, which I didn't really want to look into. I then found out there was an elementary proof of it. So that really ignited my interest. And I have done several write-ups of it. And I have taught my class that because of that proof, I've actually, um, I now teach a grad. This kind of, usually you first teach, you're assigned to teach a course and then I'll put into it. I said, I want to teach Polly van der Warden theorem to students. Therefore, I'll teach a course in Grant Ramsey so I can do that. So your recent blog has a big conversation on P versus NP. How yeah. would you explain this to a person with like a non-mathematical or a computer's background? Okay, very good. Yeah, the thing is, realize trying to sell people on proving that you can't do something never works. Really never works. In fact, when you see PNP in the popular literature, they often say, you know, they seem to mistake solving it for proving P equals NP, which is the wrong direction probably. But however, here's what I do. I first begin with the traveling salesperson problem. That people can understand. Uh, like, for example, I might tell if Stephen here didn't know anything. And Stephen, do you know anything? I don't know. At this point, I, I don't know. All right. Okay. I would tell <laughs> Stephen, when you're on the job market, you have 10 interviews, but for some reason, they're not paying your travel. So how do you actually optimize uh, what cities to go to in what order to minimize your costs? I would begin with a very, very concrete problem of the traveling salesperson. I mean, I guide them through and not, not even N cities, but 10 cities, 10 cities. And then I ask them, okay, how would you best do that? And the good thing about uh, airfare is so screwed up. Airfare is so weird that they're not going to say, well, you know, uh, minimize distance. There are no tricks to that. Or you can tell them, come on, airfare is pretty weird this way. I mean, there are times when you're better off going New York to California to New Jersey or New York, ah, Canadians. Better off going Newfoundland, British Columbia, Newfoundland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So begin with a traveling salesperson problem very, very concretely, 10 cities, and tell them that, wow, you know, you could do it in 10 factorial. Uh, you could look at all possible combinations and you can even guide them through why there's 10 factorial. And then ask, can you do better? Or do you think you can do better? And then segue <laughs> into people think you can't do better and PNP is why you can't do better. They're going to say, that's crap, man. What do you mean it can't do better? And, and why do you want to prove that? Well, don't, don't, don't want to prove that you can do better? Is that a better thing to prove? So, so people are like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Somehow um, this is not politics. You can't just make stuff up like that. Um, yeah. Okay. So then I would say, but realize once you know you can't do better, you can then look into other options like approximating it. And indeed, there are some cases we have pretty good approximations, but we would not have known to look there if the problem had actually been thought to be easy in the first place. So therefore, uh, I go with TSP. So very, very concrete TSP problems, then go into that. It seems like we can't do any better than that. And then go into, it's good to know approximations. And the last thing you'll say is TSP is only one problem. There are literally thousands of problems that have the same property that are equivalent to it. And all of them are either going to be easy to solve or hard to solve. And we think hard to solve. And then they might ask, well, uh, what's it worth to me? I might say $1 million for the millennial, for the millennial prize. Now, I would kind of avoid, all kidding aside, I would avoid the term as P and NP, and I would even avoid the millennial prize because that kind of skews the discussion to, I mean, it's an important problem anyway. It's kind of weird that people think it's important because it's worth a million dollars. As a side note, do you know what? The Poincaré conjecture was solved about 10 years ago. It was also worth a million dollars, and the guy turned it down, which is kind of weird. But um, my wife asked me, what's the Poincaré conjecture? And I said, if something looks and smells and feels like a sphere, it's a sphere. And she said, <laughs> okay. she was, let's say she was unimpressed. Yeah. My point is, yeah. I, but again, I, I think saying, but it's worth a million dollars, that doesn't like it, does not make her any more impressed. So yeah, yeah. But, but, but back to PNP, I would avoid the millennial prize. I would avoid mentioning it though, because that's sort of, like I said, it skews. People just find it important in its own right, not because someone else thinks it's important. So then okay. um, let's actually talk about your book or your muffin book specifically, um, <laughs> the mathematical muffin morsels. Uh, yeah. I got to say, I took a little bit of a look at it and oh, I got to say, I was kind of disappointed. There was no muffin recipe. Yeah, I got wow. it on Kindle, actually. So that's my one. I got. Uh, yeah, I did have one sale in Canada. That must be you. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually like the muffin analogy, uh, but can you oh. give us sort of a more general form of the combinatorics and optimization theories that like you kind of talk about in the book? Yeah, yeah, I kind of no. only skimmed it, yeah. yeah. First, let me tell the audience what the problem was in the first place, okay? Yeah, because the price is a problem. So, uh, oh, yeah. oh, right, there actually are five of us, great. There are five of us here. Let's just say there are three muffins and the five of us want to divide those muffins. You could divide each muffin, let's see. So we, each person gets, let's see, five, uh, three fifths. There, right? Yeah. So um, we could divide every single muffin into, into five pieces and give Newt five, uh, get, 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 uh, three one-fifths, Stephen three one-fifths, um, yeah, uh, Harleen three one-fifths, and, and a PayPal there three one-fifths. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, we could do that. Now then, however, uh, however, Stephen is, Stephen is pissed off at that. You know why, Stephen? I don't like pieces. Right, right. I, so the question is, can we divide, in this case, three muffins to five people, so the smallest piece is bigger than one-fifth? It's a fair question. And it turns out you can. It turns out you can do it so it's one quarter, and you can't do any better than that. So, But we're looking at the following problem. We're looking at 
making the smallest piece as big as possible. And that's great. And it involves, it turns out, it involves using some hard applied math to do that properly and some clever math to actually prove you can't do any better. But uh, the point is, though, that th th that's one nice problem. This goes in many directions, though, which I didn't go in the book. But one is uh, what's called the area of fair division. So, um, Stephen, one of the muffins is half blueberry, half chocolate, say. What, what, what do you prefer? Mm, I love strawberry. Fine, I'll make it strawberry and chocolate, great. So the thing is, whereas uh, PayPal here likes chocolate, okay? Mm -hmm. okay? So the point is, so you haven't, we were assuming that everyone, everyone thinks that say one third of muffin is worth one third, but actually you might think that the half that has strawberries on it is worth three quarters. And you might think the half that has chocolate is worth three quarters. So you could generalize the problem to what if people have different tastes, then what do you do? And um, now that has been looked at in isolation, not in my, not in my notion of biggest, smallest piece, but fair division is an area where uh, people say things like, I want to make sure everyone gets at least one over N, like the five of us, one, one fifth in their own measure. Say. So mm -hmm. like maybe Stephen gets uh, one quarter. Maybe we're, maybe we're all winners. We, we all get more than a fifth because of our different tastes. So one could generalize the muffin problem to combining it with fair division. Uh, I, have not, I have not done that yet. And writing a book on a topic is a good way to burn out on it. So this is not going to be, someone else must continue my fine work. Okay, uh, so that's one direction to go in. Now, this was, fair division was done a long time ago, and there are a lot of things known about it, which are very interesting. But then people began looking at it more seriously for, I, I kid you not, societal benefits, world hunger. I am not kidding you. you know, muffins and cakes are not really what they're thinking about. Things like, what if you have a limited allocation of resources? What if you have land to divide amongst farmers who need, who need to farm it and make, and make profits and stuff? And one guy's better at farming strawberries. So better at farming chocolate? Oh, I wish, okay. How does chocolate, is chocolate actually, uh, it's not a plant, what actually is it? Yeah, it's a bean. So the thing is though, so one can look at really complicated and real world problems where you have a thousand farmers and they're all trying to figure out how to split this land equitably and the government may help as well as being an enforcer of whatever the rules are. And that might take a lot of hard mathematics and stuff. Also one of my colleagues, John Dickerson, who was a co-author on one of the papers on muffins, he works on a kidney exchange, which is, how do you allocate kidneys to people in the fairest possible manner as well? So again, a notion of an, a, a scarce resource. So I'm saying that I am not gonna say my work is that close to this area, but the allocation of scarce resources is a very serious, practical, large scale applied math problem, which has been done in a lot of variety, including kidney exchange, economics uh, for splitting up um, farmland uh, inheritances. Um, yeah, like when my, this is a strange note, when my, um, when my wife's mother passed away and, they, and, they, and the four siblings were splitting the, splitting the estate, they were questioning, oh, that, that, was not, that, was, that, that was actually quite nice. I mean, nobody was mad, but you can imagine a case where I want the piano. No, I want the piano. But you could, and there's a company, Brams and Taylor who worked in the area, have a company that actually does software to help you resolve these disputes. Uh, well, that they, they tried doing it for divorce cases. That didn't work so well. <laughs> <laughs> the trouble is, with divorce case, it's not a matter of Stephen wants the piano and Stephen's ex-spouse wants the rug. It's a matter of Stephen wants to make her suffer. Yeah. I mean, they, they weren't too surprised, but they did think they thought they could try it out uh, on a divorce. But my point is, though, settling disputes is also pretty good. One thing they didn't count on, which happened with my, with my uh, darling, 
is that there are certain things that my mom left them that nobody wanted, but everyone thought to stay in the family. So then what do you do? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. okay, but back to the original question though. Yeah, so um, uh, re- uh, uh, allocation of scarce resources is a serious problem that my book is, you might say, a cousin of. Okay, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. okay. Okay, yeah. That's a fair, I think that's a fair comparison. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Yeah. Uh, as a side note, by the way, I would never push my work as being that practical. Um, I I don't go for this, oh, math, fun abstractly, eventually apply someplace. Ooh, isn't that great? No, I think uh, actually it's more of a nexus of math, comp sci, physics, applied math, all help each other out. So if is there any kind of advice that you want to give to a young person who is thinking about going to PhD program for maths or computer science? Yes. Okay. I, I have a lot. I have a lot of advice. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. We really need it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, we oh, need. In fact, we need it. Uh, in fact, uh, the four are, are the four of you thinking of going to math or comp sci grad school? Uh, I'm wanting. I'm wanting to go into a, PDA, a PhD program eventually. I don't know if it's for math or not, but. All right. And, yeah, I'm gonna uh, go for the computer science program. Yeah. yeah. And Stephen. The first thing goes to what I was saying earlier about math and, uh, and uh, math, applied math. Um, do not be a snob on any of these areas. Um, like I said, so uh, let me re- reiterate the notion that, oh, pure math is loftier and more pure and we eventually apply to the real world. Bunch of crap. The thing is, pure math is great. Applied, I have seen applied math applied to pure math. Really. I have seen hard work done on applied math because the people in pure math as well. I have seen chemist, chemist, oh, chem, a chemist, by the way, Stephen, a chemist came up with a lot of the combinatorics of counting, um, like counting the number of rotations and things. So, I mean, uh, yeah, uh, how many ways can you color a cube? I mean, physics, math, computer science, applied math, pure math. These are all a nexus. They all help each other out. So do not look down at any of them. That's one point. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. so, so uh, Anut, it's okay to go to pure math, but don't look down on PayPal that we're going to comp sci. Okay, um, other advice is that, um, yeah, also, um, you, you may have heard it said, getting a PhD is learning more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing. So you want to avoid <laughs> that, of course. I would say, make sure you stay well-rounded. Make sure you actually stay, you, I mean, I, I kind of prefer the onion mode. Let's just say, I'll, I'll make this up. I'll use Newt as an example, if I may, may, Okay, Newt gets a PhD, say, in Ramsey theory. That's fine, but she also knows Come, I mean, it'd be really weird if you knew Ramsey theory, but nothing else in combinatorics. That'd be weird, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want to know Ramsey theory and combinatorics around it, and logic that I was talking about, say, and some things that applied it, and maybe there's been some very hard work by Terry Tao on applying like dynamics to Ramsey theory. Now, dynamics is hard, but I mean, at least be aware of what he did, even in a black box sort of way. And so you you want to actually make sure you're sort of well-rounded. No, to get a PhD, you've got to be focused. Like I get that certainly, but you want to be well-rounded within your field, though. So within mm-hmm. Ramsey theory, be well-rounded. Chemistry, I'm sure chemistry is similar. You don't want to be the expert on carbon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, go to carbon and hydrogen. Okay, let's see. Um, also, advice would be yeah, be well-rounded. Very good. Oh yes, a comp sci or math or chem. Since you're here, chemistry, I'd actually <laughs> recommend going to comp sci grad school rather than math grad school. Either comp sci or maybe applied math grad school. Here's why. And again, this is not a snobbish thing. It's just that, um, ma- okay, Newt, how old is math? Uh, uh, yeah. Very, very old. <laughs> Thousands of years. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it goes way back. Um, I mean, um, yeah, math is really old. 
Uh, and the comp sci, as you might imagine, is younger, certainly. But the point is math is it takes so long to get to what's, okay, let me tell you two things. One is the job market's better in comp sci, that's true. But if you want to say, but I'm a purist at heart, I, I will starve to do my mathematics. I'm not gonna argue that point, that's fine too. But however, do you want to starve to do things that are really, the really, really well worn out field? That is, math is old, and therefore the open problems that are left are hard and hard to get to, and mm. it's not really as vibrant as comp sci. Uh, and again, boy, I will say again, it's great stuff. It's not stopping. It's, it's great stuff, but it takes so long to even learn the prerequisite to get to the uh, new results and things yeah. like that. Yeah. And also, you're soon you end up. Um, you might be a brilliant mathematician proving something no one cares about or something sort of off to the side. Uh, I remember, I was also at a PhD defense, and uh, most of the time, the PhD defense in mathematics, I understand nothing. Um, but this one, she began by saying, uh, the topic here is what groups can be Galois groups? I thought, great, I, I, I care about the quintic well. I, I do know about Galois theory, and I, I studied that, my motivation to be a math major. I understood nothing the rest of the talk. <laughs> And at the end, I said, so tell me, what groups can be Galois groups? And she laughed at me because, oh, gosh, that was the motivating question. We've gone, so, I mean, uh, essentially, she was looking at a conjecture about it that was false and the class of counterexamples to the conjecture. Oh, God. So the trouble is that math is sort of, again, even if you're good, math, and I'm sure you're all, I'm sure you're all awesome. Now, the, my, point, my point is I'd recommend Kansai uh, because, like I said, it's actually uh, a more vibrant field. Now, exceptions. If you're going to math and do combinatorics or do a logic, there are newer fields, but there's still, first off, you might as well do comp sci in that case, I would think. <laughs> math is hard. I remember, oh gosh, I gotta tell you this one last anecdote about this sort of thing. Um, there was a movie, uh, there were three movies. Uh, George Burns, a very old actor at the time, played God, literally, in the movies. Uh, oh God, Oh God Part Two, and Oh God, You Devil. In Oh God Part Two, he's talking to a little girl working on a math homework. And as God, he says, math was a mistake. I made it too hard. <laughs> and, and that's I think I'll go with that. Yeah, it really, yeah. it really is. It's also, it's also like I said, it's, it's hard. Now, again, if you can do it and do it well, that's awesome. And I applaud you. And so if you can do it well, that's great. But I'm just saying that it's like I said, I'll, I'll use the phrase again. It's sort of a worn out feel at this point. If you could go back and speak to your younger self, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, let's see. Uh, don't become a black tar heroin addict. No. That's fair. <laughs> a good one. Uh, I think that's pretty good advice to follow. Yeah, that's yeah. fair. No, 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 more seriously. Okay, no, okay, yeah, seriously. This is the more, yeah, actually, uh, in fact, thank you um, for the opportunity to tell you this. This probably applies, advice I give, I give people in general as well, but it was more personal for me, uh, that as an undergraduate, I could prove things in mathematics. I did pretty well in my grades, I did, uh, but I didn't really understand math because I didn't really value the intuition behind proofs. So I would tell myself, when you're studying math, do lots of examples and get the intuition behind the proofs. Realize the intuition came first and the formalism later. And it's good to have both, but don't lose it. Like uh, I'm kind of reminded of my own students now in discrete math. I show them the proof that root two is irrational and root three is irrational. And on the homework, they can prove that root four is irrational. Mm -hmm. um, you realize root yeah. four is actually two. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the thing is though, they're so focused on the actual lines of the proof they sort of missed the key point where the proof differs. And I think I was doing that on a much higher level as an undergraduate uh, in, at Sunnybrook. That is, I sort of, I could follow proofs line by line and maybe some of them are actually wrong, I'm not sure. But the thing is though, I could do proofs line by line but without, without actually having the oomph, so that's why it's true kind of thing. 
So yeah. I, I'd recommend yeah. uh, for myself, for a younger Bill Sarge, and also for a younger, well, dude, if you go back, in, if you go back in time, one year, <laughs> yeah. So this is advice not just me, but it's advice in general. That um, I think now probably uh, one problem is that the way pure math is taught, well, the, the way I was taught pure math, they might have overemphasized the formalness a little too much. Again, that's blaming them more than I should, but I, it may have been partly how I was taught. Um, and I remember in Honors Calc 2, we spent an entire month constructing the real number line. Um, gee, Bill, isn't calculus like taking derivatives and integrals? <laughs> but the, the point is, though, that um, I think that I, I didn't understand why we did this. This was back in 1976, no, 77. I did not know why we did this until the year 2007 when I was at a math conference and I went to a seminar on the, or workshop on the history of analysis. Then I said, oh, so that's what the problems were. They, they already had the intuition as to how the real should be and how calculus really worked and what limits really were, but they, but they, had, but they hadn't quite defined the reals yet. The thing is though, we should learn the motivation, history, intuition first, and then the formalism to sort of see where it's coming from. Anything you'd like to add? What are you doing now? What are your plans? My first book, my first my blog was called uh, Problems with a Point. If I have a sequel, it'll be called Problems with Two Points. That'll be a cute title. Um, trouble is, yeah, problem is that it's, um, writing a book is hard. Oh, advice for you, Newt, when you get your PhD in something and write a book 10 years later, I have yeah. advice for you on that. Write the entire book first and then find a publisher. Okay. Because a publisher gives you deadlines. I'm like, I really wish I would have proofread Muffin Book and other book uh, more than I had. So, yeah, yeah. So that's advice. I will say that's rather long-term advice. Yes. <laughs> One day I'll get there. Okay, indeed. Um, hey, do you remember any teacher from your uh, grad oh, school oh, or very good. high school? Like, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Very good. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, gosh. In high school, they were called Mr. In college, they were called Doctor. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Dr. <laughs> um, Ewan. I used to call, I used, I call you PayPal to the PayAl. I called him Euler instead of instead of Euler instead of Ewell. Yeah, um, I don't think he liked that. Oh, oh well. Anyway, yeah, Doctor Ewan, Doctor Ewan, no, no, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, that's right. One of my high school professors, uh, high school teachers, had a PhD in math, so he actually was called Doctor Ewan. That's right. He was very good. He actually could talk about calculus as though it was beautiful, which it was, and, and very nice, and and uh, and, um, and all the and some history behind it as well, which was very very nice. Well, he was very good. Uh, oh, Professor Gottlieb. Uh, oh yeah, at my, at my high school was, we also had like many courses in like number theory and stuff. That was very nice too. We had like small courses and things. So that was very good. College, definitely. Uh, Jill Spencer, I mentioned before, uh, in combinatorics certainly was very, very good. And um, grad school, grad school's weird. Cause I mean, I don't remember any of my grad. In grad school, you're working on research. I don't really, I don't quite remember my courses that well. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Mike Sipser, Mike Sipser taught a theory course at MIT that I took. That was very good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, mm -hmm. no, so yeah. So I, I did. I did have some. I did have some tears that were inspiring. Um, but, um, but actually, the, in fact, Ramsey theory I got interested in because of various teachers, Joe Spencer and Nolan Road, talk about Lipton. Whereas the Quintic and how to solve things. That's me actually. I'm surprised to say I'm not, I'm not really bragging. That was my own notion of. Again, as a ninth grader, had I been able to think about these things clearly, I would have said the thing about given a problem, how hard is it, is a vast, important problem. Mm -hmm. I did think that, but I cannot possibly have said it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So ask anything, Newt. I don't, I don't have any other right. questions. Uh, Harleen? 
Uh, I think that's it. Yes. Okay. And Stephen. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Then later. Okay. Thank yes. you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you very much Thank for so joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. It Bye. was great talking to you. Thirty-two. And thank you again to Dr. Bilgis Sarch for taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with us on our Ramsey Theory podcast. We truly appreciate the answers you shared with us today, and I am sure they will be of great use to the general public. And I will also like to thank everyone again for listening to our podcast today. We hope you learned a bit more about Dr. Bilgis Sarch, and this has been Ramsey Theory. No strangers at this party. I'm Stephen Ng. My main role for this project was coordinator. I set up communications between group members and divided tasks between everyone to ensure we met our deadlines for the project. I also proofread and revised our questions for the guests to ensure that they were relevant and engaging. Umpile. For this project, I've sent emails to four of the theorists and communicated with them in order to arrange the interviews and selecting the preferable times. Researching and setting up questions for the interview was contributed by everybody, and the interview was conducted by all of us together. My name is Newt Harden. My task for this project was emailing and communicating with mathematicians to figure out which dates and times work for everyone to have interviews, as well as creating questions and researching more about mathematicians to create the best types of questions, as well as creating the final presentation. My name is Harleen Kaur. I emailed four different professors and I got reply from one of the professor and I got in touch with him and had to figure out the best time which suited him and us. Also, I did research on the mathematician and made a set of questions with my group members for the interview. Broadcasting live from the traditional territories of the Tsleil-Waututh, Kukwetlam, Skahomish, and Musqueam nations, this has been Ramsey Theory. No strangers at this party. This podcast was made possible by the students of Simon Fraser University's Ramsey Theory course, led by Dr. Vaselin Yungich, who is also the producer of this series, as well as funding from the Math Catcher Outreach Program. My name is Aidan Wright. I'm the editor of this project. I currently study at the University of Victoria. The soundtrack to this program is titled Rising Ronald in Memory of Ronald Graham. It was written by Nina Jokic, another alumnus of the Simon Fraser University Ramsey Theory course. Tune in again soon for more of the latest in Ramsey Theory and to hear more from mathematicians working at the edge of human knowledge. Thank you for listening.